I'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you wish to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's page 939. John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says you, to you, do it. That now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast, and they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to them, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. Thank you for being with us. It encourages us, and we hope we can be an encouragement to you. We also want to be an encouragement to a lot more folks today. It is We Are the Sermon Day. We're excited about it. It's the day that we will send out hundreds of people from this congregation into the community to simply do good. Uh, our Lord taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We believe that's something we ought to be doing on a daily basis, but it's really neat to be able to stop at least one time a year and say, let's all do it on the same day. And so it's exciting to, to already hear about the various plans that have already been made that will be carried out this afternoon. And I uh, just want to encourage you, uh, as you go to Bible class in a few minutes, There'll be more said in your Bible class what the exact plans are. Make sure you get involved uh, in every way that you can. We could use your help to make uh, a reporting about this, which each night on the Sunday night we have a video. Hardison Moles has made this video for us for several years. And if you'll get your phone out and do this, this would be very helpful. Put Hardison's uh, number in your phone. It's 615-939-3422. And uh, we're not just saying if you're the leader of the group, but if you will text him, no matter who you are in the group, if uh, text him your class name, text him the work location you're going to, including the address, and then the times that you'll be there. And then when you actually arrive this afternoon, if you can think about it, send him another text to say, yes, we are here. And um, then he's going to try to make it around as many places as he can, uh, getting videos. But if you could go ahead, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, turn it sideways and take, either take pictures or send a video to this email address. And it is hardisonmoles at gmail.com. 
partisanmoles at gmail.com. That'd be a big help. Listen, right after we dismiss here, we will go to Bible classes. If, if you haven't found a Bible class home, if you're a guest this morning and we can help you uh, find a place, please let us know after these services. We're going to continue our fall focus where we're studying King's story and we're looking at the life of Jesus Christ through uh, Matthew, him being our king. And so we really want you to be a part of our classes and our study. It gives us opportunity to get to know each other better, but especially to get to know Jesus better. And that brings us to our theme today. Kingdom living. How different will your life be if you really understand who Jesus is? Oh, it's easy to misunderstand things about Jesus, and that's why we have the Holy Word of God, is that those understandings can be clear. We can know exactly what God wants. I think about the little boy who the teacher in Bible class said to him, said, do you know the name of Jesus' mother? He said, oh, I do. Her name's Mary. He said, do you know the name of his father? He said, I do. His name is Verge. He said, I don't understand. Where did you get verse? He said, well, I've always heard about the couple, Virgin Mary. Well, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the Lord and even about His miracles, like the miraculous virgin birth that He came into this earth. And when we think about the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is written to be an apologetic writing. In other words, John tells us very clearly, I'm writing this to you so that I can give you proof of who Jesus is. What I'd like for us to do over the next several weeks is I'd like to, for us to spend some time in some of the paragraphs in John. Number one, I hope we learn the Gospel of John better. Number two, I hope we learn Jesus better. Number three, I hope we learn the power of Jesus' miracles and we gain from those miraculous powerful examples what God wants us to gain from those. In other words, I would ask you as we study today and throughout the following weeks, is Jesus king of your life? What a mistake we're making if we do not allow Jesus to reign in our life. If we know that Jesus Christ is king, yet we do not allow him to reign in our lives, this is the worst thing we could ever do to ourselves. Did you notice how I finished that statement? We do it to ourselves. Yes, intentionally. I placed ownership upon each one of you. If you don't believe in Jesus, it's your responsibility to learn. Would I be wise? Is there enough evidence? Should I believe in Him? Does it matter if I believe in Him? Listen, this is on each one of us individually. We're not going to stand on the day of judgment as a collective group. Whatever your list of excuses and whoever you would blame on other people why you do or do not believe in Jesus, they're not going to be standing there with you in a group on the day of judgment. And you look at Jesus and you say, look, let me tell you, you see my parents, this is the reason I don't believe in you, Lord. You, you see this religious leader I had in my past that, that just really was a, a, a pitiful person. This is the reason I don't believe in you, Lord. Oh, no. On the day of judgment, it's you and Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? That's why the Gospel of John is written. The Gospel of John is written to say, I want to give you proof. You can believe in Him. The evidence is great. It is significant. We sing the song sometime. 
what will you do with Jesus? You remember the setting of that song is Pilate had Jesus standing before him and he had to decide what he was going to do with Jesus. He washed his hands. The crowd on the outside had to decide what they were going to do with Jesus and they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Peter had to decide what he was going to do with Jesus and he denied him three times. And I love the chorus. This is the chorus of that song. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral, you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Jesus ought to be the king of every one of our lives. But each individual has to decide, will I allow him to reign in my life? Well, John, if you were going to prove to us that Jesus should be the king of our life, how would you do it? And John would say, one of the things I would do is I would write a story telling about Jesus' life. And one of the things that I would put in that story is I would put miracles in it. As a matter of fact, I'd put at least seven or eight different miracles. And I would choose miracles that I believe that would prove that he is the Son of God and that you ought to believe in him. And so that's literally... The reason he writes this, and that's why we study it this morning. So here we are. We're at a wedding. But where are we at that wedding? Notice there in John, the second chapter in verse 1, we're at Cana of Galilee. On this map you see here at the bottom of the, Gal the Sea of Galilee, uh, just at the south of it there, if you go due west, you see a town called Nazareth. Remember, that's where Jesus grew up, spent most of his years there in Nazareth before he began his public ministry. If you look just due north of that, about nine miles north, you'll see a little place of Cana. Now, what's interesting is a lot of scholars say that Nazareth itself may have only been 500 people in population. So Jesus spent about 30 years in a little bitty town. You can imagine how everybody knew everybody. If you ever grew up in a place like that, you know what I'm talking about. Now, imagine this. When he goes nine miles north to Canaan for Galilee, that's a much smaller place than Nazareth. So this may be a place where only a few hundred people live. Now, you can imagine how big an event a wedding is going to be at a place like that. But then we say, okay, if we've got a wedding, it's important to know who's going to be at that wedding. Well, we don't know everybody that was at that wedding, but we do know that the event was made up of his mother, and of Jesus there in verse 2, and his disciples. But now, let's back up just a moment and let's look at when this event was taking place. When we go back to John, the second chapter in verse 1, it says, on the third day. Now, that's a little bit misleading because you might think that's talking about the third day of the wedding feast. Really, that third day is not tying in to the wedding feast. It's tying into the broader story where back in John, the first chapter, he started talking about Jesus' public ministry. And so this third day is relating to the fact that just before, three days before, and really it had been probably three, four, and five days before, but he says three days before, he had called his first five disciples. Now, when he called them, and we don't have time to develop this, but if you want to make note about it and read back, it's so interesting. Beginning in the middle of John, the first chapter, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, looked over at the Apostle John, you're reading his writings this morning, and Andrew, and he said, pointing at Jesus, the Lamb of God. Well, they were so intrigued, they followed to listen to him. 
They believed that he was the Lamb of God. And Andrew ran back and told his, his brother Peter, I found the Messiah. Peter started following. The next day, Jesus and these three disciples found Philip. Philip was so intrigued, the fact that they found the Messiah, that he ran and told Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel wasn't as quick to believe. But Jesus was able to prove to him that he was the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Nathaniel, this is beautiful for the theme that we're looking at. Remember what Nathaniel's response was? It was a few different things. But one of the things that he said is he looked at Jesus and he says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's what he says in the first chapter. He says, I know, I know who you are. You're not just a man. You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. Jesus comes into this wedding with these five new disciples. And you know what's interesting? We really don't know for sure. It's probably a little bit of both. Why did Jesus receive an invitation? Well, we know his mother's there, so you assume that the family is connected some way to this. But you know what else is interesting? When we read late in, in John, it's John the 21st chapter and verse 2, you know what we learn about Nathaniel? We learn that he is from Cana. So he's literally going back to the little bitty town he's from for a wedding. So it very well could have been that Jesus was invited to this wedding because of ties with his family, but also he could be invited because one of his new disciples is also invited to this wedding. And so when we read there in the second verse, that's why it says now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to this wedding. So we see a little bit about where it was, who was invited, and, and etc. But I'd like for you to just notice that very last word in verse 2. And that is, what's taking place? Well, we've already said it many times, but what's taking place is a wedding. That must have been so exciting to that little community. There's going to be a wedding take place. You know, to God, weddings are big deals. Or at least the marriage that comes out of the wedding is a big deal. You ever notice that the Bible opens and closes with weddings? Adam and Eve, they were created to be husband and wife. Genesis, the second chapter, verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. The close of the Bible is the spiritual wedding. You remember when the just toward the end of the Bible, just the last chapter or two, we read about the great wedding supper that's being provided, the feast that's being provided. But then just the last couple of paragraphs of the Bible, it says, the Spirit and who? The Spirit and the bride say, come. Who's the bride? The bride's the church. The church is waiting on what? The church is waiting on the bridegroom to come back and deliver that bride into that heavenly home. And then everywhere in between Genesis and Revelation, God's people hold up and honor weddings and marriages or they are corrected or rebuked by God. Societies are always blessed when they follow God's plan for a marriage and there's always some difficult outcomes that come out when societies abandon God's plan for marriage. Even though Jesus never married, it's interesting that his first miracle is going to take place at a wedding feast to honor that very design that the Godhead had given as he created man and woman. When we look at this, we notice that weddings are exciting unless verse 3 comes true and you happen to be the groom. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said... They have no wine. 
several of you in this room in some way have been connected to a wedding recently. You know that one of your great concerns will we have everything that we need provision-wise for this wedding. Several of you cater or you are in restaurant or some kind of events coordination business. You know that the great concern is what if we have an event and then what is supposed to be provided runs out. Listen, for the groom, this would have been much different even than perhaps for our culture today, at least maybe a, a deeper pain would have been associated with this. You see, in that day and time, they had an engagement, but it was much more serious than an engagement. It was a betrothal. In other words, it was so strong that the way you broke a betrothal was a type of divorce. But what was interesting, and this is where we don't have anything like this in our culture today, is still they were not married. And so what would happen oftentimes is the betrothal would take place and about a year later there would be a wedding feast and during that wedding feast there would be a marriage and then at the end of that marriage there would be the, cons the consummation of that marriage and, and, and then the marriage would take place. They would live it. But what was this year? This year was for the groom to prepare to prove himself worthy to take care of the family, to take care of his new bride. And so during that year, the man would oftentimes go and, and build a room, build a house, make provisions. He also would be the one responsible to provide for the wedding feast. It's kind of just the opposite of the day where you think about the bride's the one that's responsible for that. The groom was responsible for that because that was part of the provisions. That was him saying, I can take care of my bride. And so now he's the one supposed to take care of her and what's happened? They've already run out of the provisions and that's going to be an embarrassing situation, no doubt. It's interesting that Mary, Jesus' mother, is the one who apparently is hanging out over here with the servants trying to help this situation. Just a little side note of interest. Isn't it interesting that every time you read about Mary in the scriptures, she's highly favored, she's a servant, she's one that's just wanting to do good. You, you have to love and appreciate the heart that Mary had. And so she turns, no doubt, to the one that she has turned to many times. Listen, we can't prove this from any scripture, but the absence of Joseph makes us believe that somewhere after 12 years of age, Joseph probably passed away. And when Joseph passed away, you can imagine Jesus being the eldest son and even the eldest child in the family. You can imagine how many times Mary turned to him to ask him to help her with situations. Also, you can imagine the fact with Jesus being perfect, think how many more times she turned to him. What if there was someone in your life that every time you turned to them, they gave you the right answer? Every time they knew exactly what to say and how to do it. Can you imagine with the perfection of Jesus how often she would naturally turn to Jesus and say, we've got this problem, what do you suggest we do? Now, my opinion is, I don't think she was expecting a miracle here. I think she was doing what she had naturally done many times. But you and I know that what he is going to do is he's going to solve this problem in a miraculous way which makes this story absolutely amazing. You can imagine things that would have gone on in her mind, though, as she was still trying to figure out exactly who is this Jesus. I want to scan just a couple passages. We don't have time to, to linger at these, but you remember in Luke, the first chapter, whenever she was told by an angel that she was going to have a baby? She was a virgin. 
She was told by an angel that she was going to have a baby. And she was told by that angel in verse 32 of Luke 1, He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Highest. And He'll be given a throne. He will reign. And it will be His kingdom. Many of you have found out that you were pregnant, but it was probably not through an announcement of an angel that you were going to have a child. Or can you imagine when Jesus was 12 years old and they started back home after spending some time in, in Jerusalem only to find out that Jesus wasn't with them, so they doubled back searching for Jesus. And when they found Jesus in the temple, do you remember there in Luke the second chapter that he, in a sense, rebuked them saying, don't you know I must be about my father's business? Now many of you already know where I'm going here. The summary that was given to Mary is very revealing. Notice in 51, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Can you imagine what that woman had in her heart? Exactly who is my son? I know what the angels said before he was born. I know how the angels sung when he was born. I know how wise men came from a distance when he was born. Ever since he has been introduced to me, people have told me he's going to be a king. When he was 12 years old, something happened there, and perhaps Mary could say, I don't exactly understand what it was. But now are you listening? She would have known something over the past few months was very different. The man that grew up in her home and lived in her home till he was about 30 all of a sudden left home. Something's changed. And while he's been gone, she probably is hearing word. You know, I hear that he went to John the Baptist to be baptized and John said, I'm not worthy to baptize you that I wouldn't even be worthy to untie your shoes. You can imagine her thinking, I've heard that John the Baptist says he's the Lamb of God. I heard that he went out in the wilderness for 40 days and didn't eat and went through just very difficult temptation. Well, now think about it. Here she is at a wedding and they meet up with each other. I've heard that, well, these five men, they just introduced themselves to me and they introduced themselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. Who is this man that's my son. It truly would be an amazing thing for her to ponder all of these things in her heart. But when we go back to John, the second chapter, notice what his response is. His response is this, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You see, Jesus does not want individuals to know that he is the king because they would misunderstand and think that he's the king of the earth. And that would caused the timetable to be off of his crucifixion. And Jesus is the one giving his life. His life isn't being taken. He's going to say from time to time, my hour's not come, my hour's not come. But you come to John the 12th chapter, and he goes to that triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and you know what he says there in John 12? He says, my hour has come. Now, some would say his addressing his mother here seems a little bit rude. Well, I would say it does seem a little bit harsh. It lacks the intimacy that we would expect. But you know what this seems to be the beginning of? It seems to be the beginning of Jesus saying to his mother and his earthly family that as important as you are to me, there's something more important to all of us. And what's more important is spiritual life. 
Let me show you two passages again quickly on this, and we'll come back and finish up this in John 2. You remember in Luke the 11th chapter, Jesus in Luke the 11th chapter had been teaching, he'd been healing, he'd been casting out demons. And you can imagine individuals that were seeing this, to use the expression today, they would have been blown away. They just would not have been able to realize. And then you can imagine someone saying, don't you know that his mother is just the most blessed woman? Well, here, here's the way it's said here. Look at 11 to 27. And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. And notice, Jesus doesn't say here, You're exactly right. She's the most blessed woman on earth. She's carried the Son of God in her womb. Notice, he doesn't say that. Look what he says in 28. More than that, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Today you have the opportunity by God's teachings to be blessed more than Mary ever was. Now Mary could have the same blessing if she decided to hear the Word of God and keep it. And as far as we know, she did. In other words, that was the greater blessing than being able to say, I gave birth to Jesus Christ. What is Jesus doing here? Over and over, He's showing that the spiritual trumps the physical. The spiritual trumps the physical. Another occasion of this is Matthew, the 12th chapter. You remember, Jesus was dealing with the multitudes. And, and I want to remind you, and some of you may not know it, I'll inform you from the Word of God. Jesus' brothers still are not even believing that He's Messiah. There's multitudes that are believing that He's the Son of God, and His own siblings don't believe it. And so He's dealing with the multitude, and out waiting on the outskirts are the siblings wanting to see Him in Matthew, the 12th chapter. And in verse 47, one of the multitudes says, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. And Matthew 12 and 48, he answered and said to one and told them, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And in 49, he stretched out his hand toward his multitude and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does what? The will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Again, Jesus is not dishonoring the very idea of the family. He's not saying from now on, I'll be cruel or mean to my family. He's not at all. But what he's trying to do is get all of his disciples to lift their eyes and realize that we're invited to be a part of a kingdom that is more important than anything. Now, I'll pause here and say this. The beauty of being a part of God's kingdom is then that we become the best family members we could ever be. A person that first devotes themselves to saying, I want to hear and obey the Word of God. Only then can they be the husband and the father that they really ought to be. Only then can they be the mother and father they really ought to be. Only then can they be the, the child or the grandchild or the grandfather. You just name any relationship and we are going to be blessed. But it's priority system. And that's what Jesus is trying to get everyone to see is, look, as wonderful as my mother is, let me tell you who is even greater blessed. Those who realize the importance of this kingdom. So what does Jesus do in John 2? Notice he has them to take six water pots. And he has them at the end of verse 7 to fill them to the brim. Why do you think he had them fill them to the brim? And that day in time, because the, the Jews were so determined to not be drunk. It was a sin under the new covenant. It was a sin under the old covenant. And so one of the things that they would regularly do is water down their wine. Some would say three parts water, one part wine. Some would say even up to ten parts water, one part wine. They would have been accustomed to taking water and pouring wine in it and then saying, here's wine. 
That wouldn't be a miracle, would it? If Jesus would have said, put, put some water in these vessels and then just imagine the, the, the servants, they do something a little bit and they come back later and now it's filled to the top. What would the servant say? Well, he asked to put some water and then he filled the rest up with wine. That's where that came from. Oh no, that didn't happen that way. He said, I want you to fill up these water pots and I want you to fill them. And they filled them to the brim. And from everything we can see in this story, Jesus never touches it. And so now when that's filled to the brim and they dip out of it and they go to the head server and they say, hey, here, here's some more. We had run out, but here's some more. And the next verse tells us there that they didn't even know that the one they're serving didn't even know where this came from. The servants knew. They didn't know. And when he tasted it, you remember what he said? This is the best. How, how is that? Nobody saves the best for the last. You, you save and offer the best at the beginning of the wedding, at the beginning of the ceremony, or at the beginning of the reception or the feast. You offer the best then, and then you trail back and you bring in that that's not so good later on. How did this happen? Well, the point is, anything that Jesus does, he's going to trump the very best that man has to offer. And so it was an amazing miracle. And I'd like for you to look in John, the second chapter, verse 11. And it says, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. His disciples believed in Him. Why was this miracle done and recorded? In the Holy Scriptures, it was done to manifest, which means to show the glory of God so that we would believe. Proof that Jesus truly is the Son of God. What we learn today? Number one, we learned that the first miracle wasn't to save a life, but really it was to save embarrassment and make life better. Now we know that ultimately it was to show the glory of the Lord, but isn't it interesting? It wasn't to resurrect someone or cast out a demon. It was just to save embarrassment. Number two, Jesus is so much more than a good man that walked this earth. He is God. These miracles prove that. Number three, if I believe the signs, I will serve the King of Kings. And in that, the King of Kings is going to teach me to serve others. So when we think about kingdom living, I'd like for you to think about as, as we go out this afternoon and we participate in We Are the Sermon Day. Jesus made the wedding feast a better place. Now He could do that through His presence and through His miracles. You and I today won't be able to go out and perform a miracle for anybody. But because of the one we serve, every one of us can go out this afternoon and we can make the location we go a better place. And just as the miracle and that goodness was to show the glory of God, that's the very same reason we go out this afternoon. is to do good and give the glory to God. I hope you realize... The miracles powerfully prove Jesus. But what powerfully proves Jesus in people around us in our lives is a transformed life that truly loves others as you love yourself because of your love for God.
What are you going to do with Jesus? Right now, if you listed excuses and you listed people, just remember on the day of judgment, there's no excuses and no other people. It's your responsibility. I don't say that to be mean. I'm just reminding you in a society where we're so comfortable passing the buck and not taking responsibility, you're not going to pass the buck on this one. Either the Lord is king and reigning in your life or you choose for Him not to be. I encourage you this morning, choose Him. Choose Him to be king of your life. If you're ready to be immersed in Christ for the remission of your sins or if you're ready to come back and to be restored, we'd love to help you in any way we